The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm really glad to be with you, really happy to be with you. I'm very grateful to Gil for his invitation. I think very highly of Gil and the Sangha. And, um, so thank you for including me. Yeah. A few years ago, I was teaching a retreat for doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals on compassionate care. And in the middle of that retreat, I had a heart attack. Yeah. Actually, I had lots of warnings about this heart attack, but I didn't pay attention to them. I was teaching one morning, and uh, I had all this heart pain, angina, you know. And the woman who works for me is a hospice nurse. And so she said, Frank, uh, you should be careful of this. And I said, oh, I think it's just indigestion, you know. Just give me some Tums, you know. So a few hours later, I was teaching, uh, leading a practice that we were doing on, on the body, and again, came all this heart pain. And I just noticed sensation, sensation, you know. <laughs> and then later that evening, I was teaching with Ramdas, who was in Hawaii, and we were doing a video conference. And he and I were having a discussion with a group of people. And I noticed myself getting very irritable with him. And it reminded me of my wife when she was in labor. And I said under my breath, Oh, Ramdas, you're just going on. Stop now. Not too much talking, like this, you know. And I realized, oh, something's happening here, <laughs> you know. And then I realized, oh, you know, now I see what's happening. I could let it in. And I said to him, excuse me, I have to go now. And they took me to the hospital and I had a heart attack in the ER. You know, I, I felt like, afterwards, I felt like Peter denying Christ three times, you know. And I do this work for a living, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to open our hearts to our own pain and to the pain of the world. Um, Surgery and heart attacks and surgery are a big deal. And uh, it took a long time to recover. And it was difficult. And a few days after I got out of the hospital, um, a very famous Tibetan teacher, I won't say who, he, he called me up to see how I was doing, you know. And I knew he'd had some difficulties also, and I, with his own heart. And so I said, um, how'd you do this, you know? It's so hard. All the vulnerability and the drama and the pain and the helplessness, you know, it's, it's just so hard. How'd you do it? And he thought for a while. And then he said, well, I thought, it's good that we should have a heart. And, you know, if we have a heart, we should expect that we'll have problems. And then um, he told me to rest a lot more. He giggled and he hung up. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, you know, he's really right, you know. If we have a heart, you know, if we have a human body, we should expect it, we'll have problems, you know. It's going to suffer, it's going to have difficulties. And, you know, that's part of what, um, part of our work is to open, really. To really learn to open to things just as they are, yeah? Um, If there's no room in our hearts for our own difficulties, not much room in our hearts for the difficulties of others. Hmm. Um, So... I work on the notion that when we allow ourselves to touch our own pain, whatever form that is, um, and you really get to know it, you know, sit down with it, have a cup of tea, get to know it really well, and we become very familiar with it, it allows us to build a bridge, an empathetic bridge to another person's experience, yeah, and meet them. One of the things that seems true for me is that when we let ourselves really come into contact with just how absolutely precarious this life is, it's so precarious. You know? Remember just a few years ago, tsunami waves rushing into Japan? 
people that were walking around that day in the village didn't imagine that was going to happen. It's absolutely precarious, this life. And because it's precarious, it introduces us, helps us to see actually how precious this life is. And then we don't want to waste a moment, you know. Then we don't have to walk around living in fear. We step into our life with full-heartedness, you know. There's people we love, we tell them we love them. Yeah. We jump into life with both feet. Um... You know, in the, in the Zen tradition, those of you are familiar with it, outside the meditation or outside the, the uh, Zendo, there's always a large wooden block. Maybe you've seen it. It's called a Han. And uh, uh, Han is hit with a wooden mallet. And that's how you call all the students into the Zendo, into the meditation hall. And usually written across this uh, wooden block in black semi-ink is... Um, a teaching, a version of which is usually something like, um, be aware of the great matter of life and death. Life passes swiftly. Wake up. Wake up. Do not squander this life. And every day, it's hit with a mallet. And every day, uh, teachers and students walk by this teaching and are reminded of this very fundamental teaching, really. But what's interesting is that over the years, as this you know, Han is hit with a mallet, the words actually disappear after all that hammering. Yeah? And then the Han itself becomes the teaching. Because the Han itself starts to become a fragile and vulnerable thing. And eventually it breaks, like us. It seems to me that this is what comes from um, being allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, allowing ourselves to um, relax around our treasured beliefs, our notions of ourself, um, to soften our resistance, if you will, to this constant change of life. Yeah. And when we do that, at least in my experience, we we learn to take ourself and life a little more lightly. Maybe we don't take our ideas or ourselves so seriously. And I think this engenders in us a certain kind of kindness. Because less defended, we're more receptive, actually. More receptive to the deeper dimensions of our nature. And that nature... um, acts on us. It shakes loose the calcification around our hearts. Yeah. It um, illuminates the dark places. Um, in, in the many years of working with people who are dying, long time now, lots of people, one thing has seemed really true. And that is that healing is always found by going toward the suffering. And it's just so counterintuitive for us. (laughs) You know? I said this a long time ago to a group up in the Northwest in rural Idaho. And a guy said to me, "Um, that's like telephone poles. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, I used to install telephone poles. He said, they're 40 feet high, really big, you know? And when you put them in the ground, they're quite unstable for a while. And they start to swing, and they fall sometimes. And when they fall, they're a little wild. And they can fall on a man and break his back or even kill him. He said, so the first day I was on the job, I said, uh, if that pole starts to fall, I'm running like hell that way. You know? And his partner, who was an old-timer, you know, he said, oh, you don't want to do that. He said, if that pole starts to fall, he said, you want to go right up to it. You want to put your hands right on it. He said, it's the only safe place to be. You understand? Yeah. We're always running in the other direction, away from our suffering. And then it hits us in the back of the head and takes us by surprise. Yeah. I remember there was a guy who was turning in bed one day, Joe, and at Laguna Honda, and I turned him in bed. And he turned, as, he, as I turned him, he said, I never thought it would be like this. I said, what did you think it was going to be like? I'm very honest with people. 
He said, I never thought about it. Um, compassion is a direct and appropriate response to the presence of suffering. Now, there's no shortage of human suffering in this world. Endless wars, endless pain. And if compassion arises up out of the presence of suffering, why isn't there more compassion? I think this is a reasonable question to ask ourselves. And I don't know that I can answer that in totality, but it seems to me that one of the factors is that we so rarely turn toward the suffering. We are masters at distraction, at turning away in one way or another, yeah? You know, we have in Buddhist practice this notion of the three poisons. Greed, hatred, and delusion, or famously called greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, aversion, and delusion. Martin Alwood, a very good, wonderful teacher, he has a beautiful way of talking about it. He calls it demand, defend, and distract. Demand, that's craving. Defend, that's aversion. And distract, that's delusion. And you can feel it. You can feel the pull of the demand. And you can feel the push of aversion. And you can feel the spaciness of distraction. We are masters of distraction. Think about how much of our day is assigned to just to that task. And for some of us, myself included, I sometimes um, opt for temporary relief over healing. I choose comfort over truth. And um, in so doing, we accept a very limited perspective of who we are. Yeah. Because we imagine, you know, we're not going to be able to meet this. And so we cling to what's familiar, what's known, in an effort to ward off or control what seems intolerable to us. You know, the word um, compassion, you understand, it's often translated as suffering with others. That's the usual definition. But for me, the word in the middle, with, is so important. That's the whole heart of the whole definition, with It implies a certain intimacy, both with myself and with the other person. And this intimacy is often felt as a certain kind of attunement. Compassion is an attunement to exactly where you are, or exactly where the other person is, and to the particular face of the suffering that's here now. And it has no agendas, and it has no shoulds, and it has no judgments. It simply wants to be with suffering. It wants to snuggle up close to pain. Yeah. I don't think we can help ourselves or each other if we are busy trying to change ourselves or each other. You know, when I was sick in, in the hospital, um, sometimes my caregiver's attention was fixed on problem solving. Yeah. And I felt like they were addressing what should be happening for me. I should be getting better. Yeah. Or um, what is most important, that my symptoms be reduced. Or um, how I should be in this particular moment. And you know, when you're in a situation that's completely future-oriented, it's very hard to stay present, actually. I remember I said to my, even my friends, you know, who came in and they'd say, how are you? You're doing a lot better today. It's going to be better tomorrow, they would say to me. And all I wanted to do was to touch what hurt. 
Uh, I'd go into the bathroom, you know, and I'd just sit on the toilet and cry and cry and cry. And they'd go, you okay? I'd leave me alone. <laughs> I worked so hard to get to those tears. So compassion expresses the gentleness, we could say, uh, the kindness, the support that's necessary for our hearts to relax, for our souls to relax, for us to trust, so that we can open to what hurts. Yeah? And I think without the presence of compassion, we can't really open to our suffering. Yeah? So when compassion is present in this way, in this kind of attunement, it's so clear to our own hearts, to the heart of the other, that we feel ourselves coming closer together. Yeah. Uh, my friend Ramdas calls this a soul-to-soul meeting. That's how he talks about it. Like years ago, I was um, at Zen Hospice, and there were two men who were both dying of AIDS, uh, Stephen and Rick. And then, when you went into Stephen's room, you felt like you were walking into a sanctuary. It was almost transparent. Absolutely beautiful. And just down the hall, also living with HIV, was Rick. And in addition to his HIV, Rick had a um, stroke, and so he had aphasia. He couldn't, he had a whole right side of his body was paralyzed. He couldn't find his words. And it was really difficult for him. And he was so angry. He was really angry. And everything that we did to try and support him, you know, it just bounced off this kind of force field of defense. But anyway, this one day Stephen was dying, and <clears throat> I said to Rick, you know, if you, if you want to say goodbye to Stephen, today's the day. So he said, okay. And I, I helped him down the hall. We went into Stephen's room, and he sat on the bed. Stephen was lying down. And I just went to the corner. That's my way, just to sit in the corner. And then Stephen and Rick entered into this beautiful exchange. Not a word was said. Just this beautiful exchange between them. These two men, both living with HIV, both dying. In this kind of silent exchange. It was so beautiful to watch. I wish I could somehow describe it to you. It was so beautiful to watch. And then at one point, you know, uh, Rick just nodded his head like this, you know. And Stephen said, yeah, that was great. (laughs) And, um, you know, Rick left the room and Stephen died that afternoon. Rick knew when he was looking at Stephen that he was looking at his own destiny. He knew this was coming for him too, soon. And Stephen understood this also. But Stephen... Oh, he looked back with so much compassion. There was so much compassion in his heart because Stephen had really done his homework. He really had opened to his own vulnerability. And because of that, he could be there in a soul-to-soul way with Rick. Yeah. And that's what was so beautiful in the exchange. Absolute attunement. Yeah. Compassion arises, it's a part of our nature that arises, we could say as a kind of guidance. It's not just warm and fuzzy, it's a guidance. It shows us actually how to be with suffering. And you know, if we want a trustworthy guide, you know, if we have someone's going to guide us, we have to know that that guide cares absolutely for us. What matters most to us, yeah? Not just in some general way, but in a very specific way. Otherwise, how will the guide know which way to orient you? Um, Years ago, there was a woman who was dying in the hospice and she wanted to get married to the man that she'd been with. And she knew she had only maybe six weeks to live, but she really wanted to get married before she died. And she said, "Um, would you perform the wedding? 
And I said, sure. I said, but what you really need is a wedding coordinator. You know? There's a lot of work involved in this. And I'm very good at that. I could help you do that. And so she said, okay. So every day I would come to her room and we would talk about her wedding. Yeah. And we'd talk about cake and we'd talk about dress she would wear when she would lay in her bed or she'd sit in her wheelchair. All the details, everything you would do in planning a wedding, you know. Because I knew, you know, we were talking about a bigger wedding here. Yeah. Bigger marriage. And then in the day, when the, right in the middle of one of these ordinary conversations about cake, yeah, she just burst out into tears and she said, I just want my mom to be there like that. And her mom had died years before, really. But you see, what was important in that moment is that's what mattered most. It wasn't that she was dying. It wasn't that she had cancer. That wasn't what was most important. It wasn't even her wedding. It was that she wanted her mom to be there. That was the particular, precise face of her suffering in that moment. Yeah? And so that's what we had to be with. When our attention is attuned very precisely to what matters most, while also being cognizant of the whole set of conditions, then the other person feels this, or we feel it when we're offering it to ourselves, and the heart responds. It feels seen, it feels cared for. And so, the attention has to be precise, but also panoramic. One of the mistaken notions that we have about compassion is that we should make people to feel safe. And that's really good if you can do it. But I worked with dying people, and dying doesn't feel safe to most people. And you can't tell them it's perfectly safe, don't worry. They'll slap you. But what I found is that when I actually am abiding in my own compassionate heart, you know, when I'm willing to look at my own sufferings as a way of evoking my compassionate heart, I'm really willing to look at theirs and my helplessness. Then what happens is the other person starts to open to theirs. Not because uh, there's no danger. Actually, they feel a lot of danger. But because they feel accompanied. Because they feel like there's a refuge of compassionate presence that's also here. Yeah. Yeah. So, compassion isn't just warm and fuzzy. It's fierce. It's fierce. It's what allows us to stay present in the room when the going gets rough and we want to run. Many years ago, some of you have heard me share this story before, but many years ago I was called by a family whose seven-year-old boy had died. And I didn't know this family. I was literally, I was in my office, you know, talking to someone else. The phone rang and said, hi, um, you know, I'm so-and-so, and my son has just died. I said, you mean recently? He said, no, I mean he just died. I said, oh. And I said, how can I help you? And he said, well, someone told us you could help keep him at home. And I said, yeah, I, I can do that. So I went to their house, and uh, I didn't know the family. And I walked into the room, and the mom and dad were there, and a couple of family friends. And, uh, I walked up to this young boy in the bed, and uh, I just, following my instincts, I just leaned down and kissed him on the forehead, you know. And when I did this, the whole room broke into tears. Because while people had cared for him with enormous kindness, you know, beautiful care, nobody had touched him since he died. So we talked to his mom and dad about this ritual of bathing the body, you know. And, and, oh, all cultures have done this for millennium, you know. And so we talked about how they might want to do it. 
and they were great gardeners. And so they went out to the gardens and they collected lemon geraniums and rose petals and sage and rosemary and herbs from the garden. And they made a big you know, tin or pan of water, floral water. And then uh, there's the mom and dad and I in the room. And they started to, we, we settled first, and then they started to wash this little boy's body. And they, they, first they walked down the back of his body, starting at the back of his head, you know. That's how we used to do it at Zen Hospice. And wash down the back of his neck and along his back. And uh, it was hard. And the mom would find these little scratches or nicks, you know, and she'd take care of them with such care, you know. It was so beautiful. And they would stop and they would tell me stories about him. Sometimes it was so hard that dad couldn't do it, you know. He just had to go stand by the window, you know. It was too much. And then he'd come back, you know. They'd start again. And I remember the mom got to his toes and she washed his toes and she counted them. She said she'd done that when he was born, you know. And they washed up the front of his body. It took a long time, took a couple of hours to do this because we just had to stop. Sometimes weep, sometimes tell stories. And you know, my job, my primary job, was to stay in the room. Yeah. And to, when this mother would look at me with these eyes, these beseeching eyes that would say, is it possible? Can any mother survive this? You know? You know, my job was to give her another washcloth and orient her back to her son. Yeah. And she did, and she was amazing. And she got to this face of this little boy, and it was so tender between them. There was so much love and also so much grief. But she had burned through a kind of grief. You know, not I don't mean she was over it. I don't mean anything like that. I mean, she let it come in all its fullness, all its rawness, all its wildness. And they were so close, this mom and this son at this point, there was no separation between them. And I, I imagine maybe the only other time like that was when he was born. You know, you know how that is, those of your moms in the room, you know that experience of breastfeeding your child or that feeling where you know there is it's just one being here. Ah. After we finished, we dressed him in his Mickey Mouse pajamas. And his brother and sister came in and I, I asked them, what did he like to do the most? And they said he liked to build model airplanes. I said, do you have them? And he said, yeah. I said, okay, well, let's, what should we do with them? And they said, let's make a mobile. And I said, okay, let's make a mobile. And we made a mobile out of his airplanes. We hung them over the bed. Yeah. In Japan, you know, in the, in the Pure Land tradition, you put at the, face of the, at the base of the bed, you put a screen with a painting of the Pure Land. So that when the person is dying, they're always looking at the Pure Land. Yeah. What they love most, you know. I thought model airplanes were good, too. My son was uh, seven years old at the time. And I can tell you that night I held him really closely. Yeah. Hmm. When we really start to appreciate that your suffering is my suffering, not in some merged, unhealthy, psychological way, but recognition that when my left hand gets cut and hurt, my right hand immediately reaches out and cares for it. Yeah. When we understand that basic, that's the basis of who we are. When any part of us is hurt, any part of this organism of who we are, all of us here, another hand reaches out. Yeah. And it's the natural response. You don't have to generate it. You don't have to do a bunch of fancy practices. It's the natural response of your being. Yeah? Maybe the first response is fear. But right there, 
is compassion. Whenever I speak about compassion, I always feel like I should put a warning label on the bottle. Because the truth is, you know, when we let our hearts open, you know, uh, let our backs be strong and our fronts be soft, a lot of suffering shows up in our life. And it's been my experience that that's true anyway, because somehow, you know, the pain wants to expose itself to the healing agent of compassion, of loving kindness. So, be prepared. This is why we need a strong back and a soft front. Because otherwise we'll just get lost. We'll get so unhealthily merged in an empathetic, and get caught in empathetic overload. Compassion is not empathy. It's a step beyond empathy. Yeah. It's not just, I feel with you. It's that I want to do something in particular to help relieve your suffering. That takes a strong back, too. Uh, years ago, I was invited by Bernie Glassman. Some of you know Bernie. He's a Zen teacher to help lead a retreat at Auschwitz. There were 150 of us that came from all over the world, actually, to sit on the tracks at Birkenau. And um, John Halifax was part of that, myself, a bunch of wonderful teachers. And uh, every day we would sit on these tracks at Birkenau and uh, chant the names of people who had died in the camps. And it was hard. I, I imagined I would go to this retreat and I would learn a lot about forgiveness. But mostly what I learned about was rage. My own rage. I didn't feel soft and fuzzy. And um, every morning, uh, those of us who were helping to teach, we would have a group. And I had about 30 people in my group, and so we'd come together in a circle and kind of do a wisdom circle in the morning as a way of speaking to what everybody was experiencing. And uh, in my group, um, there were... uh, um, Germans and Jews, people from all over the world. Uh, one woman who had been a child in the camps. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the last night I was there, I actually snuck back into Birkenau. I was probably the only one who broke into Birkenau. Yeah. Um, and, um, but a few of us kind of snuck in. And I went and I sat in one of the one of the barns. These were horse barns that were, became uh, dormitories for the people living there. And they were just racks, of wooden racks, you know. And I was sitting in the darkness in this uh, barn doing compassion practice. Yeah. Loving kindness practice and compassion practice. And uh, all by myself. And then in the darkness, into the darkness, came this young woman, now older woman, who had been a young child in that barn as a child. Yeah. And she was at the other end of the barn, and I was down here in the darkness, and she couldn't see me. And she just began to wail. And it was the most horrific sounds I'd ever heard. Horrible. And so I went, and I just sat next to her. Because, you know, you can't say anything to this. All you can do is bear witness. And sit with a strong back and a soft front. Yeah. So as best I could, and I, and I was weak. As best I could, I stayed with her. And we passed the night together. And at dawn, we went back to our hostel we were staying in and said goodbye. And I had to leave the retreat a day early and fly to Germany, where I had agreed to teach a series of retreats on grief and forgiveness. <laughs> and these were arranged before I accepted this invitation to go to Auschwitz. And so I didn't mention anything about Auschwitz when I was in these retreats, but I, I taught them. And at the end of this three-day retreat on forgiveness, um, I was saying goodbye, thank you very much, and waving <laughs> in a big room of people. And uh, this one woman in the back of the room, she raised her hand, you know, and I, 
I thought, no, time to go. But I thought, no, maybe. So I called on her. I said, well, what is it? And she stood up and she said, you know, Frank, I've been listening to you for all these days about forgiveness. And she said, I can't forgive. She said, I tried, you know, but I can't. My heart feels like stone. It feels like ice. You know, my father was a Jew and he died in the camps. And I can't forgive. Oh, it was really powerful, you know, in this room, 200 people. And I hadn't said a word about Auschwitz. It was just in the field, I think. I thought, oh, what can you do? You can just bear witness. You can't take away this pain. So I sat there with her, and so did the rest of the room. And Then another hand went up, and I thought, oh, here we'll, the stories will come now. You know. But it's still difficult to talk about these things. Another woman stood up and she said, I also have a heart of stone. My heart is like ice. She said, my father was a guard in the camps, and I know that he killed people. This was a very brave thing to say, but also very painful for her. Yeah. And again, all we could do was bear witness, yeah. And then these two women, they did the most amazing thing. Most amazing thing. They stood up. And they walked across this room of 200 people toward each other. And then they just held each other. And it was such a beautiful teaching on your suffering is my suffering. Your suffering is my suffering. It may not have the exact same shape or face, but aren't the causes the same? Demand, defend, distract. Yeah? Sometimes, sometimes, compassion seems to heal or a particular pain right away. Just seems to happen. Compassion emerges and oh we feel relief. But sometimes the presence of compassion, of loving kindness, it helps us stay with a situation that would otherwise be too difficult to tolerate. And by staying with it, the compassion allows for a deeper truth to be revealed. The intelligence of compassion is not just that it soothes pain, is that it shows us what the true causes of the pain are. My friend Michael uh, lived with multiple sclerosis for 25 years. And his wife and I were very close. They came to see me in counseling because their son had committed suicide many years before. And I stayed with Michael for a long time. He said, Frank, he said, I know I'm going to die someday and I want to prepare. So for 15 years, we prepared. All kinds of conversations. And one night he called me. He'd just come home from the intensive care unit. And he said, I'm not going back to the hospital anymore. And I said, how come? He said, oh, it was horrible. It was so horrible. He said, I was so scared. And I just looked at him, you know, and I said, oh, Michael, I said, this fear is not going to go away. And he looked at me like, first a little shocked, and then he just relaxed. And he said, oh, thank you. He said, that's the most comforting thing anybody's ever told me. (laughs) I said, that fear is not going to go away, you know. That part of us is always going to be scared, you know. So we have to find something who can be with that fear. Compassion wants to be with suffering, and that goes counter to the, issue, the, the wishes of the ego. Because some part of our being, and I don't know exactly how to describe this to you, but some part of our being understands some part of our being understands that 
without a willingness to be with the pain, to be with what is difficult in our life, we can never really know the whole truth. And we want to know the truth. We really want to know what's true. Not some religious idea of true. I mean, what's true right here, right now? Yeah? And now what's true? And now what's true? That's what our meditation practice is about, isn't it? Moment to moment, what's happening? What's true? What's true? So compassion requires that we touch what hurts. And it's the actual presence of the suffering that invites, if you will, the compassion to manifest. So the real significance of compassion, the real significance of compassion, is not exactly about removing the suffering. It isn't about making the suffering go away. It's about, it gives us the capacity to be with the suffering, to stay with it until we can see the truth that's trying to show itself. Yeah. And so what happens is when the presence of compassion, you can feel this in your own practice, you know, in your own, you know, with some knee pain or some emotional anxiety. You can feel the presence of compassion come up and stay with you in a way. I'm speaking about it like it's something other than you, just to illustrate, but it's not. It's at the very heart of who you are. And it stays with that. And as it stays with it, our defenses against the pain fall down. <laughs> Isn't that what happens in meditation practice? You know, we're and then something comes in and we just something softens and we cry or our body shakes or something happens and we relax. Yeah. And what happens is when the defenses fall down, there's an unobstructed view. And then we can see really what the causes, the true causes are. And then we can do something. We can really do something to alleviate those causes. So the deepest understanding of compassion is the capacity to sense, to physical experience compassion. Can we experience physically, I should say. To be with suffering as a means of coming to the truth. So this is intimate work, I said at the beginning. We cannot do this from a distance. Yeah. And we have to get really close to what hurts sometimes in order to, and, and to really be able to be with it, hang out with it, stay with it. Until we really begin to see, oh, your suffering is my suffering. Like even saying that to ourselves. Oh, Frank. I say that to myself. So like, oh, Frank, you know, your suffering is my suffering. <laughs> I know it sounds like I've been trying to get it to go away, but actually, it is. It's mine. Yeah. There's a wonderful um, piece I like very much from Arthur Miller from his play After the, After the Fall. You know, beautiful play. Great American playwright. And in it, the character, uh, you know, it's taking place um, just after the war, after World War II. And so the character's um, saying this. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread and the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger. And within a week you're climbing over corpses of children in a bombed subway. What hope can there be? I tried to die near the end of the war, the character says. The same dream kept returning to me every night until I dared not go to sleep and I became quite ill. I dreamed I had a child and even in the dream, I could see it was my life. And the child was an idiot. The child was deformed and um, disabled. And I ran away. But it always kept crawling back into my lap. And it clutched at my clothes. And I thought, if I could just kiss it, 
whatever in it was my own, if I could just kiss it, whatever in it was my own, then maybe I could sleep. And I bent, as I bent to its broken face, it was horrible, but I kissed it. And I think one must do this, finally take one's life into one's own arms. I went to see my old uh, friend and teacher, um, Stephen Levine, uh, and his wife, Andrea. A few weeks ago, I was in New Mexico. I went up to their house. and We hadn't seen each other in a few years, and I wanted to be with them because I love them. And um, We're getting older. And Stephen and I had a wonderful day of compassionate exchanges, playful and compassionate and he gave me a beautiful, couple of beautiful poems. I'll read one to you to close. And um, he said, make sure you read this to Buddhist groups. <laughs> I said, okay. It's called The Mother of Us All. It's Stephen Levine. Mother of us all prays to free us from our image of perfection to which so much suffering clings when in the shadowy mind we imagine ourselves imperfectly praying to be freed by enlightenment, she refines our prayers. Putting her arms around us, she bids us rest our head on her shoulder, whispering, don't you know, don't you know, with all your fear and anger, all you're fit for is love. So I think I'll stop my uh, formal comments here and we'll have some time for exchange. And you're going to remind me, right? Okay. (laughs) We'll just take, because I want to share with you a bit about this program at Spirit Rock, but before we do that, let's just, uh, let's just see if there's any comments or, yes, please. How's this? Great. Okay. You're doing good. Um, I was wondering if you could say more about staying with anger. I have someone that I care really deeply about who I can see is struggling and hurt and feeling a lot of pain and um, protecting with anger. And I try really hard to stay with it, but I have a really hard time staying with anger. And then I usually get hurt. Yeah. And so, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, so, what is it that's hard for you about the anger? It hurts. Hurts? Mm-hmm. What hurts about it? Yeah, just follow that, right there. Follow that. What hurts? I guess I take it personally. Yeah, probably. That's normal. So, But what is it that hurts when someone's angry with you? My heart. Your heart hurts, yeah. How come? I don't know, I guess I feel like I don't deserve this. That's Uh what the feeling is. I don't deserve this. Yeah. So you maybe feel a little self-protective. And then when you have that feeling, I don't deserve this, what do you want to do? Then I want to protect myself. How do you want to do that? By getting angry. Yeah. See how it goes? Yeah. Yeah. So, when you really let yourself feel how much it hurts, that's the key. To not letting the anger rise up again. Not to say, I don't think anger is bad. You know? It's necessary. But what happens is, usually a certain kind of strength that we need 
in our strong back gets tied up in the anger and gets displaced in some kind of outrage, you know. But when we actually feel, oh, this hurts, you know. Oh, when someone's really angry at me, it hurts, you know. And I feel threatened or, and I want to protect myself, you know. And you feel the, let yourself feel the vulnerability of that. Well, that's really good to know. You know because one, one, you'll start taking care of that. <laughs> you'll start taking care of that vulnerability right then yourself. Yeah? And also, maybe, doesn't have to, but maybe, it gives you some understanding about how, how come somebody else raises up to anger, rises up to anger so quickly. Yeah? So like that. And I'm not suggesting that you'd be a doormat. That's not my suggestion at all. We need strength. Sometimes it's strong to say, no, that's not okay. And we need a strong back, but we need a soft front. And when we do the other, the self-protection, then we have this idea that this will protect us. But all it does is lock the pain in. And it keeps tenderness from entering too, you know. So, so when it starts to hurt, that's there. Pay attention there. Good. That's a great exploration. You did that. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Time for any other comments anyone wants to make? Oh, please. Thank you. Um, at one point you said we truly know the cause of pain, I think you said. But am I, did I misunderstand? Or when the, when the defense or is true compassion? No, when the, what I'm saying is when compassion is present, our defenses against the pain fall down. And then we can really see more about the pain. We can see what the true causes of the pain might be. Yeah. And then we can interact skillfully. Okay. Did that make sense? Yes. Okay, Thank good. You. Is it time? Thank you. Because <laughs> I, I want to respect our time. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your... Uh, Strong backs and soft fronts, yeah. So uh, this is why I said it was important. I knew what I was going to speak about, and it's important that we have both, you know. Because otherwise we just turn into mush. And we need a strong back. But, you know, for too much of that we get really rigid and defended and protected. So we need to do this. I was teaching in a very um, formal zendo in Germany. A Japanese Zendo in Germany, right? You can imagine, this was very formal. <laughs> and uh, somebody, there was a couple in the back of the room and they were asking something about their marriage and what a mess it was, you know. And I go, what can we do? You know, we're angry at each other all the time. And I said, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. But I went out in the middle of the Zendo and I laid down on the floor. And I put my feet and my hands in the air like this and shook them like this. And I said, this is what my dog does. <laughs> when he doesn't want to fight, he shows his most vulnerable place. Yeah. So you could try that. You know. <laughs> you know, our vulnerability first feels like dependency and helplessness and weakness. But when we really let it be there, you know, it starts to show itself as transparency and porousness. And then things can come and go. Yeah? Pain of the world can come in, and it can touch our hearts, and we don't have to hold on to it, you know. Now, that's Dharma talk. Now, this is spirit rock talk. Okay? Uh, some of you know, we, we are starting a new program at Spirit Rock called The Heavenly Messengers, Awakening Through Illness, Aging, and Death. And this is a collaboration between the Spirit Rock Center and the Metta Institute, which is the organization that I now lead. And the intention of this, re, of this program is a two-year training. And the intention of this program is basically twofold. One is to look at, look through the lens of sickness, old age, and death at our life, as a way of really waking up. Yeah? To help us discover, well, what the Buddha called the deathless. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, oh, how do we take that learning and put it into everyday life, into real action? Yeah? And so, 
what we're going to do in this training, it's different than other trainings at Spirit Rock, is we're going to ask you to do service work during the course of the two years. So that means you might be taking care of your mother, or you might be working in a local hospice or volunteering in a local hospice or in a nursing home or something like this, so that you really keep meeting. You don't get, we don't get lost in our philosophical ideas. That we really look and see, how is this working when I'm with my mother? Yeah. How is this working when I'm with somebody who lives on the streets? Yeah. So that's the two, two, if you will, two primary focuses. Our own understanding, our own developing a wise relationship to sickness, old age, and death ourselves, and then transmitting that through service into the world. Yeah. And it's two, year, two years, it's five retreats. Uh, each are about seven days long, I think. And they'll happen at Spirit Rock and in Joshua Tree. And the Primary teachers will be myself, uh, James Barres, and Charter Rogel. And then in addition, um, the other co- uh, core teachers will be Bob Stahl, wonderful, uh, wonderful teacher and leader and one of the leaders in the secular mindfulness movement. Anna Douglas, who's been doing a lot of work around aging. And uh, Angie Stevens, who works with me at the Meth Institute. She, with, with Trey Wilbur and Ken Wilbur, started the first cancer support communities. So that's the core group. And then I'm inviting all my old friends to come and be guest teachers. So Ramdas will be a guest teacher. He'll be doing it via Skype. Steve and Andrea will be a guest teachers via Skype. Kathleen Dowling Singh, one of the beautiful boys, wrote a book called um, Grace and Dying. Uh, John Halifax. Um, Gil uh, is going to do a piece. Uh, Jack Cornfield. So it's going to be an extraordinary uh, group of people. So we um, made a deadline for this of May 1st, and we've had a good many um, applications. But I'm, I wanted to talk to you about it because we're going to extend the deadline. And, and specifically, we're going to extend the deadline for a couple of things. One is that I really want to make sure there's more young people doing this program. It's not just about old people who are getting dying. There are a lot of old people already accepted into the program, people like me, you know. But also, so I really am hoping that we, more young people will come and do this program. Also that um, people of color will come and do this program. That people with varying sexual identities will come and do this program. Because yeah. I don't want it to be all sameness. I'm wanting there to be a great deal of diversity in it. So we haven't announced this yet, but it, it'll come out in an email, I think, next week or something like that, that um, we're going to extend the deadline. That doesn't mean, by the way, if you're not young or a person of color, or, <laughs> that you can't still apply. So even if you're an old fogey like me, you can still apply. Okay? Um, there's a basic requirement, and that is that you have some experience, some significant experience in practice. We want you to have at least 30 days of residential retreat time. And um, we want you to practice for five years. So this isn't a, start, a program for beginners. Uh, one of our hopes in, in creating this program is that in sanghas all across America, people will come back to their sanghas, as you have here, you know, and create a support network, uh, what we're calling compassionate companions, circle of compassionate companions. So that when somebody in this sangha is sick, or this sangha is dealing with the challenges of aging, or in this sangha someone's dying, you there's a response mechanism, and you can... Now, this song is very well organized, so you already have that to some degree, but we're going to train people and, and help them to know how to do that, and how to set those programs up. So we're hoping that all across America, there'll be, in sanghas across America, people will come back to their sanghas and use the, what they learned in the retreat, not only for their own benefit, but for serving others. Yeah, so that's our, our hope. Okay. Now, I've taken you over time, and I apologize for that. Um, thank you very, very much for your kind attention. Please don't take anything I said uh, as the truth. <laughs> um, taste it, you know, chew on it. Um, if it tastes good, swallow it. If it doesn't taste good, please spit it out. Yeah. Um, but um, thank you, and I thank you again to Gil. Yeah, okay. Let's, not, let's just sit for one minute. Just a few breaths so that we go out... Sensing our bodies, feeling our hearts, and observing our minds.
just as we want to be free from suffering, may all beings be free from suffering. And just as we would wish to be free from the causes of suffering, may all beings be free from the causes of suffering.